It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Sunday Civics. I'm your host, L. Joy Williams, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist. And I'm so glad that you made it to class this morning. So I don't have a lot up front to do this morning because I have someone that I wanna bring to the front of the class for us to have this conversation because it is rare, but it does happen a lot. So I shouldn't say rare. (laughs) It does happen where I am completely unaware about a political or policy issue. And then once I'm educated about it, I read something and then do the deep dive and the rabbit hole. I'm like, hey, somebody should do something about this. And then you know how that happens, that somebody ends up being like, I need to add my voice to it. So back in September, I spoke at a Black Women's Equal Pay Day event. And the focus of the event was on sub-minimum wage tip workers. Once I started to understand the history and the context around tip workers and why they receive sub-minimum wages and how paying them will uplift us, I was introduced to this campaign, One Fair Wage. And that is a organizing arm of a number of different organizations and unions who have come together to get this passed in various states to ensure that people are getting a fair wage. Now, you may be thinking, how does this impact you? What are you talking about? Or like, I thought there's a minimum wage, just like $7.50 in some places. Is we fighting for $15? Like it's all like this different confusion. But one of the things that was eye-opening to me while I was sitting in the event, I had read material, my briefing materials before attending the event, and it was talking about specifically tipped workers. I was like, clearly, this is people making $15 an hour and like the tips is on top of it, right? And then I read like further down and it was like, no. There's a sub-minimum wage in which because people are getting tips that they can get paid $5 an hour. And then they're supposed to make up the rest of how they live via tips. But what happens when that doesn't happen, i.e. COVID, where obviously tips went down because people weren't going outside and going and enjoying restaurants. And even if they were ordering food, they weren't tipping as normally. And so what does that do? So Michigan just became the eighth state to end the sub-minimum wage for tip workers in D.C. and Maine are about to follow on the November ballot with dozens of more states, including New York, hopefully coming right behind them. And so coming to the front of the class is the president and co-founder of One Fair Wage, a national organization that is working to address this issue. So coming to the front of the class, Saru. Hi, how are you? Good. Thank you for having me. So, Saru, you are also the director of the Food Labor Research Center at the University of California, Berkeley, and the co-founder of the Restaurant Opportunity Centers United. So, like me, you have a lot of jobs, a lot of juggling, a lot of responsibilities. Yes, that's the, you know, I don't know that all of us organizers should do that, but it's clearly the sign of a good organizer. (laughs) (laughs) Lots to do. Lots to do. 
So before we get into the conversation about the sub subminimum wage, because as I mentioned, like I was clearly not as educated on this issue as I thought I was. I thought it was long past. Since it's your first time at the front of the class, I just want you to share the story of your first civic action. Oh, sure. I think I'm going to date myself, but I actually think it was in high school. I organized an action around the Gulf War, the first Gulf War that was happening at the time. And there were a lot of kids in my high school. I went to a school that was overwhelmingly kids of color, like 95% kids of color. So, so many people were being recruited into the military, young kids of color, low-income kids of color. And I organized an action really trying to expose people to the truth around the Gulf War. You know, a lot of kids and their families didn't know. They were just, they were thinking, support the troops, support the troops, but didn't know what was really happening or why they were being asked to go fight in, for a war that maybe should never have happened. Yeah, I'm not going to say it, Dace yourself. I do remember it. <laughs> Remember actions are that as well. But we're just getting seasoned, Saru. It's, it's just okay, seasoning. That's all it is. So, so let's begin this conversation and we have time. So I, I want to lay this out for folks. Like a lot of us, we go to restaurants, we go to bars, we go to places where people, where we tip. And there's always a conversation every once in a blue moon that comes up on social media where people are like, how much do you tip? And do you tip at all? And like all that kind of stuff. But I was ignorant to the fact that there were still people making $5, $4 and 20 cents or things of that nature in different parts of the country. And that they are supposed to make up the rest of their living wage tips, which puts a in, insane burden, <laughs> right, on those workers of front of thing where there's a lot of things that sometimes are out of their control. But then also, I just don't think that is just commonly known that this is happening. Can you lay that out for us? Absolutely. I didn't know about it myself until I did the many years of, of research and talking to workers. So First, it's important to know the restaurant industry has been one of the largest and fastest growing private sector employers in the United States for decades. It was 14 million workers pre-pandemic, so that's almost one in 10 American workers. But it's been the absolute lowest paying employer for generations, going all the way back to emancipation of slavery. So look, tipping as a practice didn't actually originate in the United States. It originated in feudal Europe. It was something that aristocrats and nobles gave to their servants, you know, serfs and vassals, but always on top of a wage. Servant, domestic servants, you know, agricultural workers in feudal Europe got an actual wage from these aristocrats and nobles, but tips were an extra bonus on top of that. That idea came to the United States in the 1850s, just before emancipation. And at emancipation, the hospitality sector Two industries in particular in the hospitality sectors, the restaurant industry and the Pullman train company, both wanted the ability to hire newly freed slaves, black people, not pay them anything, ex essentially extend slavery and let them live exclusively on this new thing that had just come from Europe at the time called tipping. And so in the, in the, in the Pullman train company, that was 
luxury train liners that were going from the East Coast to the West Coast. They hired tens of thousands of Black men, called them all George, hired them as porters, and made them live initially on nothing but tips, no wages. But A. Philip Randolph, who formed the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, first Black union in the United States, and won the right to an actual wage rather than living just on tips. The Black women who were hired by not the Pullman Company, but restaurants, were not so lucky. They were actually, unfortunately, not allowed into the waitresses union at the time. And they were told, you get nothing. You get a $0 wage as long as you get tips. And in 1919, so that would have been about 50 years after emancipation, 40 or 50 years after emancipation, in 1919, the National Restaurant Association formed with the express intent of maintaining a non-wage or a very low wage for these workers. That was their whole mission, was to suppress Black workers' wages. So the, uh, the National Restaurant Association, we call it the other NRA, lobbied successfully that when everybody else got the federal minimum wage, the right to a federal minimum wage in 1938, Black restaurant workers were excluded. They were told, you get nothing. You don't get a wage because you're earning tips. And we went from a $0 wage in 1938, thanks to the lobbying of the National Restaurant Association, we went up to $2.13 an hour. That is the current federal minimum wage for tipped workers in these United States of America. And there are you know, at least 16 or 17 states that are still at that ridiculous wage of $2. There are another 30 states, actually, that have a sub-minimum wage of some kind that is a direct legacy of slavery. So in total, 43 out of 50 states in the United States persist with this legacy of slavery, having a sub-minimum wage for tipped workers that comes directly from denying Black people and Black women in particular a wage. And so today you've got a workforce that I just, I started by sharing that this is not a tiny sliver of the population that's paid a sub-minimum wage. It's a huge population. It's one of the largest and fastest growing industries. Today that workforce is overwhelmingly women. More than two-thirds of tipped workers in the U.S. are women, disproportionately women of color. We have the highest rates of single moms of any sector in the United States and the highest rates of both poverty and sexual harassment of any workforce in the U.S. because you've got a workforce of women who work at very casual restaurants like IHOP and Denny's and they earn so little, two, three, four, five dollars that their wage is negligible. It goes to taxes, in fact, and they are living completely off their tips. They're totally dependent on whether they please the customer to get those tips to feed their children and pay their bills. And that makes them incredibly vulnerable to customer and coworker and manager harassment because everybody in the restaurant knows they don't get a stable wage. They're entirely dependent on pleasing the customers. So we, we have been fighting for a very long time to end this subminimum wage for tipped workers, to end this legacy of slavery because there are seven states that already got rid of this many decades ago. So California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Minnesota, Montana, and Alaska have all required a full minimum wage with tips on top for decades. And un un unlike what the National Restaurant Association will tell you, 
those seven states are actually doing great. They have booming restaurant industries. They pay a full wage with tips on top, $15, $16 an hour plus, and they have faster growing job growth rates, higher tipping averages. People tip better when they're paid better. They have higher small business growth rates. Small businesses do better when the community is able to afford to eat out and pay and, and spend in the economy. The chains are growing faster. Everything is better in those seven states. And maybe for those of us that care about racial and economic and gender justice, most importantly, you see racial inequities and gender, especially sexual harassment, cut in half in states where these women are not entirely dependent on tips to feed their families. They get tips in California and the seven states that require full wage. In fact, they get better tips than most other states, but they are not entirely dependent on the tip. They can count on a wage from their boss like every other worker in every other industry. So if somebody tries to harass them, they can say, buzz off. I don't need your tip. I can count on a wage from my boss. So we know it works. You don't have to go to an alien planet or even to another continent or country to know this works. You can just look across and see these seven states that are already doing it and boom with booming restaurant industries. And it really begs the question why the rest of the country couldn't do it especially it begs the question why states like New York and Massachusetts and Illinois couldn't pass laws to require full minimum wage with tips on top. And we are in the process of fighting for that now. So, Sarun, I'm going to take a break here, but I want to come back because I have all sorts of questions. I want to talk about the book as well. So we'll take a quick break and then we'll, we'll dive right in when we come back. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Welcome when back to Sunday Civics. We are talking to Saru. Ja Araman <laughs> from One Fair Wage about the subminimum wage that workers all across the country have been basically trying to survive on. And as she mentioned, there are thousands, a million, it's fastest growing industry. And Saru, I want to bring you back because talk about what industries they these are. Is this you know, the Applebee's and the, you know, Olive Gardens of the world is this small mom and pop, you know, roti shops, like what, you know, like put into context, right? What, what category of the industry we're talking about? So we are talking about all full service restaurants in the 43 states that have a subminimum wage. We're talking about any restaurant with a server, bartender, or other tipped worker who's taking your order and bringing you food. And so, yes, that includes the mom and pop roti shop. It includes the Applebee's and the IHOPs. It includes the fine dining restaurants. Right now, all of those restaurants are paying a sub-minimum wage for tipped workers, or they're allowed to. Now, I will say that during the pandemic, a lot of those restaurants switched voluntarily to paying a full minimum wage because they couldn't get enough staff. During the pandemic, 
so many things happened. Six million restaurant workers lost their jobs. Two thirds of these workers told us that they couldn't get unemployment insurance because in most states they were told that subminimum wage was too low to qualify for benefits. So a lot of workers started saying in March and April of 2020, we should never go back to work in these restaurants unless we get paid a full wage. Some of them went back in the summer of 2020. They found tips had gone way down because sales were down. Harassment went way up. We heard from so many women. I'm regularly asked, take off your mask so I can see how cute you are before I decide how much to tip you. And worst of all was these workers being asked to enforce COVID protocols on the very same people from whom they had to get tips to survive. It was an impossible, impossible situation. And a lot of workers started leaving the industry. In fact, 1.2 million workers have left the industry. Millions more say they are leaving. And everybody's saying it's because of the wage. I just can't afford to work anymore when the wage is, frankly, less than the cost of a gallon of gas. I'm not going to go to work and pay more to get to work than I get when I get there. And so in response, we're seeing thousands of restaurants raise wages to recruit staff. So when you mentioned the small roti shop and the chains, I mean, a lot, all of those restaurants, a lot of them, thousands of them now are raising wages voluntarily to recruit staff. So when we say we want everybody to pay a full minimum wage, what we're saying is actually let's create a level playing field for the mom and pop roti shop and the Applebee's. Let's require everybody to pay a minimum wage. After all, isn't that what the idea of a minimum is? Like the word minimum means you don't earn less than it. And somehow we're allowing millions of workers to still be legally paid like a third of the wage and it's got to end. Yeah. You know, I started, you know, just before the event and after the event, falling down the rabbit hole into learning a little bit more. And you gave a great mini history lesson in the beginning, talking about how this started really around suppressing the economic rights and uh, yeah, the economic rights of Black women and Black people in general, right? It's come out of racialized politics and policy. Just another reminder when they try to do it <laughs> to one group, like it's going to affect right. you again, you know, That's at one point. But you actually dive a bit deeper to this in the beginning of the book, that one fair wage ending subminimum pay in America. And for those of you, it's a, it's a quick read, but it is a very impactful read to not only learn about the history, but then Saru, you take some time through the book, I think, what is this, your fourth or fifth book, to bring out stories of these workers, what they're experiencing. And I wanted you to talk about, because you made, you know, a brief mention of it, but if you could talk a little bit more about the sexualized politics, the sexual harassment that workers are facing in this as well, because, you know, that again was something that was like, huh, like, you know, it's sad, but it, it kind of makes sense, right? Like, so like, you know, asking people to take down their, so Basing tips on how pretty people are and things of that nature or how sweet they are to them. Yeah. Talk a bit more about that. Well, there is now irrefutable evidence, mountains of evidence that unfortunately tipping in this country is not entirely based on the quality of service. In fact, tipping is most correlated with the race and gender of the server. So Black women, tipped workers always get tipped less even if they provide what's called perfect service. Women in general always get tipped less than men. And among women, the data shows they get tipped 
more if they're willing to tolerate or even encourage harassment. And so, you know, it's funny. We had done a, a study a couple of years ago where we asked all restaurant workers, do you experience sexual harassment on the job? 90% of workers said, or excuse me, only a quarter of workers said yes. So one in four. Then we started hearing from workers these severe stories. And so we said, maybe we're not asking the question properly. So we said, do you experience sexual behavior in the restaurant that is scary or unwanted? And 90% of workers said yes. And what that tells us is that a majority of workers are experiencing harassment. In fact, Professor Catherine McKinnon, who's the professor who coined the term sexual harassment, said it's the industry with by far with the highest rates of harassment. She said higher than any sector she'd ever studied, including the military. And it's because you've got people who, who are just completely vulnerable, their income, their ability to feed their kids, their ability to pay their bills is completely dependent on whether they, quote unquote, please the customer. And workers have a hard time distinguishing between, is, just, is this just doing my job pleasing the customer? Or is this making me uncomfortable? And is it, in fact, sexual harassment? We heard from so many workers who say, you know, I'm asked to wear tighter clothing. The manager says, you want to make more money in tips? You know, dress more sexy, show more cleavage, wear tighter clothing. That's how you're going to make more money in tips. And again, it's a fine line between am I just putting on the makeup and smiling? You know, there was a recent article in the Washington Post and, and on TikTok about how a lot of workers say I make more money in tips if I wear pigtails. So infantilizing yourself as a woman. But, you know, just the amount that you have to do to get those tips is different than any other industry where you get an actual Your income is not tied to whether you can please the customer who determines whether they're happy with you and therefore tips you more or less. So that, that instability of relying on customer tips is the source of this being the industry with the highest rates of harassment that, as you mentioned, got worse with the pandemic, became, frankly, life-threatening with the pandemic. Well, yeah, because we saw it, we saw the news during that time, right? People refusing to wear masks when restaurants had mask policies, bars had mask policies, or people fighting then the hostess or the waitress, like yeah. I don't want to put it on, or or things of things of that nature. And it's like I didn't make the policy. Like number one, number two, like you know, this is the process. And it's like, if you can't do it, then you should go home. Similar to those of us who do tip, well, like, oh, if, well, if you can't tip, then you should eat at home. Right. Like these kind of <laughs> like conversations is part of the public contract that happens when you go and have somebody else make your food. Right. Like that money that you are paying for that is not just for the person cooking your food, but also, you know, the bartender, the person you know, washing the dishes and, and things of that nature. Yes, but they also get paid differently than say, because the dishwasher may not get tips. That's right. right? Yeah. You know, I mean, in some places they, they do this thing where they put it all together and they just split it with everybody, but it depends. And it depends on, you know, each establishment and each institution, how big they are. Are they a conglomerate? Is it one thing, right? And so there are different rules. And just thinking about that makes just 
just increases my anxiety. Because if I'm trying to estimate, can I pay my rent? But it's based upon, you know, how many hours I can work plus tips. Or if we're pooling everything, you know, and someone is not pulling their weight, you know, like that, that gives me anxiety just thinking about how to calculate that yeah. rather than thinking, can I go in and do my job? Right. Which, you know, my job as a server and things like rather than thinking about like how many more hours do I need? How many more times do I need to smile, you know, or things like that in order to get the tips that I need to cover my bill? Yeah. In fact, we did an event with number Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez a few years ago. And, you know, she was a bartender before she became a Congress member. And she kind of said it in a way that helps people understand. She said, look, if you are a tipped worker and you it's the first to the 15th of the month and somebody tries to harass you, you might be able to say buzz off. But from the 16th to the 31st of the month, somebody tries to harass you, you're thinking about, I really need their tips to pay my bills on the first of the month, to pay my rent and my bills on the first of the month. So you're going to put up with it. You're going to put up with it because you know you need that money to pay your bills. And this is what makes me so hopeful is that that's been the stranglehold that the industry has had over workers for so long. They were so afraid of doing anything or saying anything that would jeopardize them getting those tips to pay their bills. But the pandemic broke everything open and so many workers just reached a point where they said, you're asking me to do so much more for so much less. On top of being a server bartender, now I have to be a public health marshal. Now I have to tell people to wear their masks, sit six feet apart, you know, show me your vax card. You're asking me to do two jobs and you're not even paying me the minimum wage and tips have gone way down. And so people started People started leaving in mass. You know, this was even worse for black workers. We we found that 60 percent of all workers said tips went down at least 50 percent. 70 percent of black workers said their tips went down at least 50 percent. 70 percent of all workers said when I try to enforce these rules, I get tipped less. Eighty five percent of black workers said when I try to enforce these rules, I get tipped less because nobody was trying to hear from a black woman. Wear a mask. Sit, 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 sit six feet apart. Or show me your vax card. You know, they were not willing to hear it from people who, unfortunately, a lot of this is just I'm going to be real. A lot of people have this mentality that these folks are here to serve you. They're here to serve me. Right. They're not here to tell me, you know, what to do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So what other categories, you know, because obviously we say tip workers, primarily we're talking about restaurant workers. Are there any other workers that fit into these categories? Absolutely. So nail salon workers, car wash workers, parking attendants, parking valets, the people who push your wheelchair in airports, all of these workers are considered tipped workers subject to a subminimum wage. And sadly, we're even seeing the growth of this into some more retail environments. So you're seeing some cafes or coffee shops where you never had to tip before, but now because of Apple Pay or electronic payments, they're turning the screen around and asking you, you know, how much do you want to tip? And we've seen some coffee shops try to reduce their workers' wages from a full wage down to a sub-minimum wage because they're now accepting tips on the, on the screen. Beyond tipped workers, though, there are other workers that also experience a sub-minimum wage. So gig workers, Uber and Lyft drivers, DoorDash workers, they get tips, and we've seen these companies attempt to try to reduce how much these workers receive 
based on how much we tip them, which sounds outrageous. The idea that you'd order food and when the delivery worker comes, you tip them and that worker gets paid less by Uber Eats or whoever because you tip them, it sounds outrageous. But, but, but actually, that is the exact model that's been used in the restaurant industry since emancipation, which is that every time we tip in a restaurant in 43 states, it is allowed to be counted against the workers' wages. So there's a growing number of industries using the subminimum wage. And unless we, we've got to end it so that more and more industries don't start joining in. So I just want to hammer that point a little bit more because, you know, obviously we're focusing on the restaurant industry. And as you mentioned, for a number of people in the industry, they have, you know, using the conservative talking point that will happen is just like they moved with the market, right? Like they weren't able to hire people. And so then they had to offer, like, why do we need legislation to address this when the market will work out for itself? Pause on that, because I want to come back to that. But the fact of talking about that this is in other industries. I didn't think about car wash workers. I didn't think about, I mean, these are things that I, you know, tip in general, but I didn't have a conscious thought that they may be getting $5 an hour or $6 an hour thing. I was just like, oh, well, they have the collective box there. I'd make sure to put $5 in and keep it moving. Right. Like, but it wasn't a conscious thing of, you know, uh, of what they are earning in that instance. And I believe that there has been a lot of reporting, obviously, over the years to talk about the gig industry, you know, the app industry, I would call it, right? Because everybody wants to, like, you know, I can, if I have a car, I can, you know, do Uber, I can do Uber Eats, I get me a bike, I can deliver food, right? Like in order to jump in, but not realizing also that this is not, you know, they're getting around it by saying, we don't dictate people's hours. We don't dictate, you know, them being employees, but there clearly are two different categories. There are the people that do things just haphazardly. And then there are the people that like, this is their living, right? Like, and so there Mm -hmm. could be a different, different categories in terms of people who are trying to make extra money versus people who are doing this full time. And then that these companies need to pay up because of that. Right. right. Uh, But that that consciousness is something that I don't think people in general have, right? Because we do view these professions, these jobs as people serving us and that they are, you know, their tip is like, do I like you enough? Did you do the bare minimum? You know, I've been out with people sometimes that I don't go out with no more. Like to, you know, restaurant, we're like, all right, everybody's doing, we're splitting the bill and then everybody's putting us on top of, and then people are nitpicking. Well, they didn't even bring me a towel to do so-and-so or this, (laughs) you know, like the digital things that people have, you know, want to add on to prove that they had something, they've done something exceptional to earn, you know, being tipped in that way, but just also thinking about the different professions. And it was only a couple of years ago for me that I learned about tipping the cleaning folks at hotels, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, (laughs) that that was only 10 years ago for me, I think, right? So that kind of consciousness, I think is important to talk about work in that, in that general thing. And I think it's really tied to what we, how we value work. 
That's right. Because we value in the country. We'll we value an investment banker better than we do someone who's washing your car. We value, you know, someone who works in an office versus someone picking up trash, you know, on, you know, on the highway. Right. So like we, we ascribe different value in terms of whose job is more important or more valuable and whatever education and things that you need in order to attain that certain role. And I think that a lot of that is tied to it in addition to obviously the racialized politics. That's totally true. And I'm so glad you use the word profession because all of these jobs, they're skilled professions. You know, they, people provide service to us because they're doing things that we cannot do ourselves. And frankly, they're much better at doing than we are doing, than we could do, right? So cooking, serving, anticipating your needs, knowing wine, knowing, you know, how food and wine interact, you know, serving you when you've, they've got 50 other customers to serve. These are all skills. They, they're real skills. And in other countries like Europe, you go to school for many years to be a hospitality professional. So I think it's a very hopeful moment where we see millions of workers finally saying, you know what, I'm a skilled professional. I deserve to be paid a full wage as a skilled professional. And I refuse to live off the, you know, just just off the whims and biases of customers because it's not enough anymore. And I can't I can't afford to only just go live off those whims and biases. So I there's real change on the horizon because so many workers are finally rejecting this for the first time, really since emancipation. It's a historic, historic moment. Yeah. So we're going to take our last break and then I want to get to I want to get to the campaign in New York. But I also want to talk about, you know, since our Equal Pay Day meet, I've started talking to some restaurant owners and also workers about their experiences, about eliminating the sum minimum wage and would love to engage you in a conversation about what folks are saying about that. So we'll take a break and we'll be right back. How can it be? Welcome back to Sunday Civics. We are continuing the conversation about the sub-minimum wage in this country and how we value work and workers. And Saru is at the front of the class with us. Thank you so very much. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, again, since the Equal Pay Day event that we had, and like I said, when I read the briefing about it a couple of days before, and even after I went down the rabbit hole, right? And was like, how do we add this to our legislative agenda? Like this obviously affects Black people from an NAACP perspective. We should do something on this. Like, I'm like, all right, sorry, we got a new recruit. Like, let's do it, right? <laughs> so, you know, then as a true organizer, what do you do? You got to call people that you know that are impacted and like, you know, get their voices, their things or whatever, because I didn't want to, you know, jump out there and then have people protesting me. So, you know, I, I called, you know, some, you know, of our members who are restaurant owners who work in these different industries to ask their opinion. And I got a range, right? Like I got a range of folks who were like, yep, all for it. 
right? <laughs> you know, I got some owners of restaurants that are members of ours was like, I already do it. It can be done. You know, I had to do it during the pandemic. You know, now granted, I also had to let people go during the pandemic, but in order to retain good people, yes, I increased, you know, pay right there. I had other folks that was just like, shoot, with tips, like my dishwasher, I mean, my bartender makes more than I do, right? <laughs> He's like, so like, maybe it wouldn't, maybe it would impact in a negative way, right? Like it definitely would impact my business in terms of, you know, do I have three people on a slow day versus having two people on a slow day, right? And so that's reduced hours that obviously would have an impact on folks in addition to tips, right? So like there is a varied response that I think folks who are owners in this space have that range from, this is going to impact my business, the amount of hours I would be able to offer, the amount of people I would be able to employ versus like, no, this helps me retain people, you know, in a good way. And then the varying people that can afford that or that can work that. I wonder how One Fair Wage as a coalition, you know, as an organization has been bringing in and having these conversations with people at various ends of the of this scope? Yeah. So thanks for asking that. We are, One Fair Wage is itself, it is a campaign and a, definitely there's a coalition, but it also is an organization of 280,000 restaurant and service workers and 2,500 restaurant owners, mostly small, independent, BIPOC-owned restaurants that believe in paying a full minimum wage, ending this legacy of slavery, ending this source of inequity, and have for a long time. So we are, we are a base-led organization. We're not just an advocacy and policy organization. And the campaign came about after really decades of hearing from workers that this was an unlivable condition and a situation. There was just a, we were on the cover of the New York Times website on Thursday of last week, you know, mid-October with an article about how now a majority of workers in this industry are saying tips aren't even bringing me to the minimum wage right now. And my employer is supposed to make up the difference, but never does. In other words, the law says if the tips don't bring you to the full minimum wage, employers are supposed to pay the difference. Under the Obama administration, we saw an 84% violation rate of that rule. And the Obama administration actually ended up declaring that the issue was unenforceable and that we should just pay everybody a full wage. So it is from hearing from workers that it's unlivable. My rights are being violated. I'm not even earning enough tips to get me to the minimum wage. That's how the campaign came about. And then we did start talking to employers. And like you said, there's definitely employers who believed in this forever and many more who joined forces with us during the pandemic, there are those restaurant owners who've been basically taught by the restaurant association and the industry that if we raise wages, it'll kill the business. I'll have to cut staff. I'll have to reduce out. I will have to, I will have to, have to, have to. And what the 2,500 restaurants in our association have been able to demonstrate is that that's not actually true. You know, they actually have found that paying people more not only allows you to recruit and retain really good people, it increases employee morale, it, increase, it reduces retention. Turnover is the highest in our industry of any industry. It's, it's almost like 300%. That means three people in one position in one year. And we actually calculated how much it costs a small business to have to retrain and rehire and recruit. 
And it's like twelve dollars or $15,000 a year for one small restaurant, millions for the chains that they're paying in such high turnover rates because people can't afford to stay in these jobs. So we know from thousands of employers who work with us that this is a very, not just workable model, it's actually better for the bottom line. They say turnover goes down, employee retention goes up, employee morale goes up. So employees are doing what? They're upselling better to customers because they enjoy what they're doing and feel confident about it and, and really want to sell the product to the customers. Danny Meyer, who is one of the foremost legendary restaurant owners in the country, has always said, listen, restaurants are a customer facing business. And so our number one priority has to make sure has to be making sure that the people who interact with our customers are happy and well-fed and well-trained and, and can support themselves and don't have to worry about my child. How am I going to feed my child tonight? Because they're not going to be able to do a good job of selling to the customer if they're worrying about that. So we not only have, you know, mountains of evidence from thousands of restaurant owners that it can be done in a profitable way that doesn't force you to re reduce your staff load. We now also have a lot of government data that shows at a macro level the states that have done this, that have raised wages and required full minimum wage with tips on top, actually have higher restaurant industry job growth rates and small business growth rates than the states like New York with a sub-minimum wage for tipped workers. So there are these always going to be these anecdotes, but we are happy to show small businesses how it can be done profitably without losing staff. So, so you mentioned New York. Talk about the campaign here in New York State, one of which I'm, you know, I just, <laughs> just mentioned we're doing our due diligence, right, in terms of it being our focus as well. Talk about the campaign in New York, but then also with the election coming up, it one fair wage is in the, on the ballot or going to be on the ballot yeah. for, in some folks. So talk about that. Yes. So really exciting because of this great resignation and so many workers refusing to work for these wages and wages going up. We actually just won one fair wage, a full minimum wage with tips on top in the state of Michigan. Tipped workers previously earned $3 in Michigan, and it would just went up to $12 an hour plus tips, and it's going up to $15 an hour plus tips in 2024. So Michigan beat New York, and a lot of other states just did this in July. Then we're on the ballot, as you mentioned, this November in Washington, D.C., for the wage to go up for tipped workers from $5.05, where it is in our nation's capital, to $16 an hour, which is what everybody else gets in Washington, D.C., we're also on the ballot in Portland, Maine, to go up to $18 an hour. And there are about a dozen states moving this as legislation in 23, including New York. New York is a key state. It's typically been a leader on these issues. Now we just needed to actually be a follower on this issue and end a long overdue legacy of slavery. And in New York, workers are owed this. Governor Cuomo back in 2017, you know, is announced that he would end the subminimum wage for tipped workers, he said at the time, it was Me Too, as a way to address sexual harassment in the restaurant industry. Two years later, in 2019, he ended up ending the subminimum wage for all other tipped workers, nail salon, car wash, parking attendants in New York, but not restaurant workers because of the lobbying of the Restaurant Association. Then Governor Hochul came in. She said, I'm a former tipped worker. She announced that this was one of her highest priorities. She also has backed away due to lobbying from the Restaurant Association. And so we are owed this. We've got fabulous legislators who've been moving this for years in New York and feel like it can finally get done in the legislature this spring um, because our various governors have not done it and we need to get it done. 
And frankly, if it doesn't, New York has lost more restaurant workers during the Great Resignation than any state in the U.S. The rate of exodus is actually double the national average. And so New York has to do this in order to have enough restaurant workers to sustain the industry going forward. So lastly, how can folks get involved in this effort, you know, besides sharing the website and others, <laughs> you know, what, how can people take civic action on, on this? Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, we'd love for you to get involved as a volunteer, as somebody who come with us to state capitals and let legislators know that they have to do this. And you can let us know that you're interested by just emailing us at info at onefairwage, O-N-E-F-A-I-R wage dot org. Um, so please email us and let us know you'd like to get more involved. But also we have a website that lists restaurants that right now are paying a full wage with tips on top. You can go find that at High Road Restaurants, H-I-G-H Road Restaurants. Dot org, you can find a list and a map of restaurants already paying this. We want you to go to those restaurants, support them and say, I'm here supporting you. I'm ordering from you or I'm here in your restaurant because I see a database that shows you are paying a full wage with tips on top. I want to tell you I'm here to support you to do that. I want to encourage you to keep doing it. And I want you to join forces with those that are fighting to end the subminimum wage as policy. So those are two immediate things. Email us to get involved, you know, support restaurants doing the right thing and let those restaurants know. And then I would say, lastly, please, please go to the website and educate everybody you know that this is an issue and that there are ways to get involved. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for sharing this, both education and activation with us. Hopefully, I suggest to you, if you're listening, if you're watching, that those workers that you encounter, that you put it to the front of your mind, right, how these workers are making a living, and that if you are going out, <laughs> you're asking somebody to do something on your behalf that you also, because for some of these workers, this is helping them make rent. This is helping them get gas to go to work. This is helping them get to their living wage in order to do the job we need them to do. And we do need very vibrant restaurant industries. We need you know, car wash workers. We need nail salon workers looking at my nails right now, right? Like we, like we need, like we need all of that. It is part of a healthy, healthy and functioning economy. And so we need to make sure that they can also feed their families, feed themselves and have a greater economic empowerment. So Saru, thank you so much. And thank you to One Fair Wage for the fight. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of you for making it to class this Sunday. We'll be back next Sunday with more of Sunday Civics, those civics lessons you need to take civic action. Have a great one. Oh,